Well, hello again, folks. Our journey through the Sermon on the Mount continues today. Uh, we've wrestled with a number of challenging teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's been uh, more than one occasion where I really needed to, after listening to the sermon, wrestle with how I need to change in my own walk. There's always been a challenge there for me. Some tough stuff to deal with, but uh, challenge is good for the soul. And so it's been a great series. I don't think today's going to be any exception. Uh, and as is so true for much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, today's teaching, I think, is going to be extremely relevant, even though it was uh, spoken and written down almost 2,000 years ago. In this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus addressing the subject of false prophets or teachers. And I'm going to use those two terms, prophets and teachers, interchangeably uh, in this sermon. At the outset, um, I would have to say that uh, I'm ready for some guidance on how to sort through all the voices that are coming at me. Uh, the media and the internet, TV and radio, blogs and podcasts, not to mention all the books and the publications we have now, all combine to really swamp us with an avalanche of information and opinions. And uh, it's hard to know which voices are reliable and which should be ignored. And the Christian world is uh, really no different. Uh, for any given issue, there's always a ton of differing perspectives and opinions, many of them promoted by people who are way smarter than I will ever be. So how do you sort your way through all of that? Well, it would seem vital that we find a way to do that because we want to be able to tell good teaching from the bad. Nothing less than God's truth and the communication of it hangs in the balance. And so it's fair to say that we're in a whole lot of hurt ourselves if we don't figure out a way to separate the false from the true. Take the example of J. Miskovic. Miskovic, uh, as described by author Margie Hack, was a man who in 2016 claimed that he had found hundreds of emeralds from a Spanish shipwreck that went down in 1622. Now, the Florida Keys, where this presumably was located, has become a, a hunting ground for treasure seekers who are looking for gems and gold that the Spanish armadas would uh, transport from uh, South America to Spain. And Miskovic's examples and the samples that he showed seemed to indicate that his find was going to be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars. So with the advice of a partner and some lawyers and some jewel experts, millions of investment dollars were collected from private individuals, from Wall Street managers, from a, from a variety of sources to protect and to, uh, to further this uh, incredible find. And what certainly helped in the fundraising was Miskovic himself. He just was kind of a likable guy. People found it easy to root for him. And so they also found it easy, because of that, to give him their money. But in the end, the world discovered that uh, Miskovic's entire project was manufactured. He had made it all up to the point where he had actually seeded the ocean floor with emeralds that he had bought on the open market. In other words, he looked good, 
but he failed to, but people failed to recognize the false from the true. They bought into his story and they ended up suffering as a result. As believers, we need to be able to recognize the false from the good. And interestingly, Jesus provides us with a method that we could use to do just that. It's an approach that helps us separate the good from the bad. And his method is contained in this part of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at today. And we're starting in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And it says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. As we start to examine this method, we should stop to note a couple of assumptions that uh, Jesus is making here. The first is something that you would think is actually pretty obvious, but in today's day and age, it's far from that. So I, I think I need to talk about it just a little bit. One of the main assumptions that Jesus is making here is that it is possible to declare something objectively false. In other words, there is an objective standard of truth that teachings can be compared to in order to determine whether they are false or true. You've probably noticed that the notion of objective truth is not a given in the culture that we live in uh, anymore. The different versions of the truth that we get all claim to be accurate. And even beyond that, there is a prevailing notion that just the idea of absolute truth is not only impossible, but it's actually uh, offensive to suggest that we can know what is actually true and right. I thought this was illustrated well by the account of a pastor whose church had rented a local theater to watch The Passion of the Christ. And after watching the movie, the pastor had come home and he was opening up his mail and the first thing he opened up was an invitation from a local church that, were, that was inviting him to visit. And the selling points that the church listed as reasons why he should come uh, included things like they did not hold to any religious dogma. They encouraged the freedom of individual thought and belief. They had a warm and accessible and welcoming service. And their children's program very specifically taught the kids to be accepting of all kinds of differing beliefs and the importance of each person finding his or her own truth. And that would have been an incredible contrast for this pastor who had just come from the film where he had heard Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The prophet Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 23 verse 16 that the prophets who fill people with vain hopes are the ones who speak visions of their own minds. We know that there is objective truth, and that objective truth is to be found in God's word alone. So that's one assumption that we need to remember. Secondly, Jesus also appears to assume here that this business of false prophets and teachers is a very real and immediate problem. Jesus did not say, if the false prophets come to you. He seems to be saying when they appear on the scene. Sadly, the history of the Christian church is littered with false teachers and heresies that have threatened the health and the effectiveness of God's community of faith. 
And that is certainly true today. But furthermore, there's kind of a thread that flows through all of these false teachings. And it's this overarching conviction that we're safe. We are not in need of salvation. There is a denial of the sin problem, and there is a denial of this notion that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was necessary for us in order to find eternal life. It's the central focus, I think, that explains why Jesus describes these false teachers as wolves, ferocious wolves. In biblical times, uh, and even today, wolves are the natural enemy of the sheep. Their only interest is in the destruction of the sheep for their own ends. And the same can be true for false prophets, especially since their teaching is not only often uh, lucrative for them, but it can also result in the destruction of the sheep if the sheep end up just ignoring their need for salvation because of this false teaching. Such teachers are dangerous, not only because of the content of their teaching, but also because they may be hard to recognize. They come, Jesus says, in sheep's clothing. They often appear to be in the company of the saved. They seem to look harmless and maybe even helpful. And perhaps even life-giving to a lot of people. That's what they appear to be with their message of, you know, don't be afraid, everything's fine, God is within you. There's no hell, heaven is right here, and you can have it right now if you listen to me. When we hear such messages, we need to remember uh, William Languish's account of an Algerian named Laglag and a companion of his whose truck broke down as they were crossing the Sahara Desert. They nearly died of thirst during the three weeks that they waited out in the desert for someone to come and rescue them. As their bodies started to dehydrate, they slowly became willing to drink anything that they could find. The sun forced them into the shade underneath their truck, so they dug a little trench there, and they hid underneath there, waiting for someone to come find them. They had food, but they didn't want to eat the food because they thought that would make them more thirsty. And dehydration is really the killer in the desert, more than starvation. It's a terrible way to die, to die of thirst. And it can drive you crazy to do crazy things. In the end, Laglag and his companion that were lost there ended up surviving by drinking the rusty radiator water from their truck. In other words, these guys were willing to drink poison just to satisfy their thirst. And I would suggest people end up doing that in a spiritual sense all the time. Sometimes that rusty radiator water takes the form of money or sex or power or just an attractive message from someone that for some reason they like to listen to. All too often they buy into the false teachings that assure us that our souls are not in danger. They ignore all the warnings of Scripture and of Jesus himself who said, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So having highlighted the extreme danger of these false teachers, Jesus now moves on to describe his method of detection. 
And we start to see this in verse 16. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? At this point, Jesus invokes a couple of images from nature, namely that of the thorn bush and the thistle. And his argument is basically this. The fruit of the plant will reveal its true nature. And so the thorn bush is not going to produce grapes. It's not a grapevine. It's not its nature to do so. And similarly, the thistle is not going to produce figs. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know the true nature of a teacher or a prophet, then you need to take the time to study and examine the entirety of the person's life and especially what that life ends up producing. I think there are two related applications here to this idea. The first is that you need to go beyond initial and outward appearances. The interesting thing about a thorn bush is that when you look at it from far away, it does produce a small little berry that can look like a grape from distance. It's only when you get up close to it and examine it that you realize it's actually not a grape. And I think what Jesus is saying here is you need to study very closely all of what a person is and all of what they're teaching and all of what they're producing to really know their true nature. The second thing that Jesus may be calling for is a long and careful look over time at a person's life before deciding if you will trust what they say. The thing about fruit is that it's not produced overnight. If you aim to study the fruit of a plant, you're going to have to settle in for a season to see what is revealed and to be able to examine what is shown over an extended growing season. All of which is to say, when we're discerning between a false prophet and a true one, don't be too quick to make your judgment. Resist the temptation of an easy assessment. Absolutely, study the teaching and the words of the speaker. That's, that's likely the first fruit that we're called to examine. But look beyond that. Look beyond just the mere words. Look beyond the likability and maybe the charm and the attractive stories and maybe even the internet articles and the TV interviews and maybe even the religious degrees. Take time to study the entirety of that person. Look at what is revealed in that person's actions, in his or her character, in the priorities that the person keeps coming back to, in the values that are demonstrated in a life, and in the impact that that person has on other people. Look for what the Apostle Paul referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so on. You want to take the time to measure the quality of what you cannot see unless you look below the surface. You've probably heard of the Queen Mary. Uh, author Robert Wentz described uh, the Queen Mary as the largest ship to cross the oceans uh, during her time, and it was launched in 1936. And through four decades after that and through a world war, uh, she served in many capacities until she was retired and anchored as a floating museum and a hotel in Long Beach, California. What you might not know is when they were doing the conversion to a hotel, uh, they took down the three massive smokestacks that she had in, in the center of the ship, and they removed them 
in order to uh, recondition them, and they put them on the deck beside the ship. And um, as soon as they did that, the smokestacks just crumbled in front of their eyes. They realized that the only thing that was holding the stacks together by that point was the more than 30 coats of paint that had been applied to those stacks over the years. Sounds a little bit like a car I used to own. All the underlying steel, and it used to be three-quarter inch plate steel, all of that steel had rusted away. That's a great picture of what a false prophet or a teacher is like. Once you remove the surface shine and you go past and look at what's underneath, uh, all you really find left is lifeless dust. So that, in a nutshell, is Jesus' method. Namely, examine the fruit of the teacher or the prophet's life. Now, that's pretty helpful. And Jesus could have stopped right there. But there's one more thing that we need to notice from the text that I think is very important. So let's just finish reading our passage for today. Verse 17. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, there's a subtle shift that Jesus makes in these verses that I've just read. In, in the couple of verses that we looked at already, Jesus is concerned about the identity of the false teachers or the false prophets. But when he gets to verse 17, he starts talking now about every tree. Every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. So now he's expanded the conversation really to include all believers, everyone, you and I included. And Jesus takes this moment to remind his listeners that what is true of false and true prophets is also true of false and true disciples. If our faith is the genuine article, if our faith is real, then there is this expectation that such a faith will produce good spiritual fruit. Our words and our actions and our character should reflect Christ-likeness. Not that we're perfect. Nobody's going to be perfect. But the general tenor, the general direction of our life should be such that love, joy, and peace should be seen. Our doctrine and what we believe should increasingly be in line with God's word and so on. This kind of fruit should be ongoing. Now, I think there is this belief or this practice uh, among some out there that, you know, once you've prayed the prayer of salvation and asked Jesus into your heart, uh, you're pretty much done. You don't need to think about God so much anymore. The hard work is done. You might acknowledge God here and there, maybe go to church once in a while, but basically you're good. You can just live your own life and enjoy heaven later on. And frankly, you know, for those of us in the Baptist tradition, we, we may be guilty of perpetuating this a little bit because we really do stress, uh, rightly so, that salvation is not due to our works or anything we can do. It comes to us as a gift. We need to just genuinely acknowledge our need and come before God and ask Jesus to be our Savior. And he will accept us 
Heaven then is our reward. We can count on that. And all of that is true. But that does not mean that we're done. Or maybe the better way to say it is, it does not mean that God is done with us. God calls us to continue to allow his work to be shown in and through us. And Jesus says the evidence of his presence in us and his ongoing work in our lives should be visible. It should be happening if we truly belong to him. And if you stop and think about it, we really should not expect anything else. If we've come to a genuine faith in Christ, then his life is within us. And that life will produce the life of Christ because it can't do anything else. It's his very nature to do this. To not do it would, in essence, be asking God to not be God. By his nature, God creates. He inspires life. He loves. He blesses. He heals. He builds. And if God is truly within us, then we should expect to see that kind of activity happening in our lives as well. That's his nature. My wife and I are are not terribly gifted at gardening. When we first moved into our, our townhouse, which is not far from here, we inherited this uh, backyard garden from the previous owner. And uh, we really weren't sure what was in it. We recognized a few of the plants there, but most of them were kind of a mystery to us. The garden needed some work, but we weren't quite sure how to go about it. So the first while, we pretty much just uh, let the garden do its thing. And uh, we did purchase a few plants, and we started planting them here and there, but mostly we just let whatever was there to basically show itself. And what showed itself was amazing. We, we slowly started seeing perennials showing up. We started seeing hostas and irises, and small bushes started to flower. We've got a Japanese maple back there, I think. Uh, those started to grow and fill out. Eventually, we learned what was a weed and what wasn't. But essentially... The garden, in many ways, took shape by itself, each plant growing and revealing itself according to its true nature. And now we can just enjoy that garden and can sit back and marvel at God's incredible design. It kind of works the same way with our souls. Eventually, our true fundamental inner nature will reveal itself. And what eventually appears will be what is truly within us. And that leads me to the second thing that we should take note of, and that's this. We really should fear the absence of spiritual fruit in our lives. Notice what happens in verse 19 to the tree that has no good fruit. According to Jesus, that tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the reference to fire here seems to be a reference to that future judgment when God will decide who will enter his heaven and who will be relegated to hell. It does appear that the bad tree, with the absence of good fruit, will be lost. We're going to hear a little bit more about that uh, next week, so I'm I'm not going to go too much into that. But what I want to point out again is that this result is ultimately all about the true inner nature of that tree or that person. To some, what Jesus says here may sound a little bit like salvation by works. You know, like, let's pile up the good fruit 
and then we're going to see heaven because of that. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. We need to remember that ultimately the nature of the fruit follows from the inner reality on the inside. And the eternal fate of a person, be it heaven or hell, will be decided by whether there is a heart for Jesus that results in Christ-like behavior or whether the absence of fruit indicates a heart that is dead to Christ and his saving work. And so the lesson here is make absolutely sure that the tree is healthy and your inner person is right with God. So let me wrap up by suggesting two primary applications from our text today. The first is this. When I read this passage, I can't help but want to redouble my efforts to understand God's word and his truth. Uh, The issue of false prophets and false teachings is an urgent one, and I don't think that has changed in 2,000 years. The threat of bad teaching and the twisting of God's truth has always been a present danger, and we need to be vigilant. We need to be ready to fight against it. We need to be dedicated to that fight with a passion that is unfailing. You may have heard of a man by the name of Kim Peek. Peek was the man who inspired the 1988 film Rain Man, and it's It's about a man who is an autistic savant with astonishing mathematical skills. Now, in real life, Peek was actually a mega savant. A savant usually has a mastery of one to three subjects. Peek was a master of at least 15 subjects, including history, sports, space, music, and geography. Peek had an incredible mind. He could read separate pages of a book uh, with his eyes. One eye would read one page and the other eye would read another page. And he could read them simultaneously and he would remember most of what he read. It's said that he virtually memorized 9,000 books. Actually, I think I I saw one one reference that said he memorized 12,000. What it would take you and I to read in three minutes, he could remember and he could read and remember in about 10 seconds. Peek once went to a performance of Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night, and as the play was ending, Peek stood up and demanded that the play be stopped. And he, the reason he did that was because the actor who was playing in the play had omitted the second-to-last line of the entire play. And later on, the actor somewhat cheapishly apologized and said, well, I, you know, I just didn't think it was necessary. And Peek responded by saying, you know what, it mattered to William Shakespeare, so it should matter to you. God's truth matters to him, and it should matter to us. It is literally the difference between life and death. It holds the key to wisdom and how to live well. It is food for the soul. It is eternal life for those who seek it. And so we should pursue it as much as we can with the same passion and dedication and skill that Kim Peek had. We should know it backwards and forwards, inside and out, and stand ready to identify and challenge the false prophets and teachers who would distort God's truth and sow destruction as a result. So my first suggestion is this. Do something in the next week, maybe start reading a new book, do a new Bible study, listen to a lecture online, watch an online video course. Do something to deepen your understanding 
of God's word and his truth. That's the first thing. But that's not all. A knowledge of God's truth is only half the story. Jesus' teaching makes it clear that the fruit of our lives is ultimately the product of a deeper inner reality. It needs to flow from Christ's life within us, a life that manifests itself in our character and our actions and our outward lives. And so we want to make sure, not just that our words are right, but the tree is healthy as well. This is a time when we should be asking ourselves, is Christ's life truly within us? Is he at the center of our being? Have we surrendered ourselves to him, chosen to believe him, and taken the life that he died on the cross to offer us? If you've never done that, then you need to do that. And you can do that right now where you are. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, grew to be a man, and then gave himself up to die on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for all sins. As fallen and sinful creatures, we require a sacrifice to make us right before God. And only Jesus is that perfect and sinless sacrifice, that perfect and sinless Savior. And as we choose that sacrifice to be for us, we choose Him. We choose Him by believing in Him as the one and only Son of God. We choose Him when we declare our sin before God, when we repent, when we take Jesus to be our Savior and Lord. And we do that by praying a simple prayer of faith, and by asking Jesus to be our Savior. Now, if you've not done that, I invite you to do that now, in this moment. And then for all of us, consider the spiritual fruit in your life. Do you see God displaying his glory and his spiritual presence in and through you, through your changed character, your godly actions, your, your dedication to his word and his work? If you do not see healthy spiritual fruit in your life, then you have to at least ask the question, do I still need to ensure that I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ? Now, if you've done that and you know you've done that, you don't need to do it again. Jesus will have accepted you and you can be confident in that. But if you're not sure, and particularly... If you don't see that spiritual fruit in your life, then you might need to fix that. And maybe, for whatever reason, you need to make sure right now. You need to ensure that the life of Christ is within you and that you've given yourself to him. And maybe you need to take this moment to receive Christ as your Savior. And if that is you, then I invite you to do it right now. I'm going to close with this prayer, I invite you all to pray along with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing gift of your Son, Jesus, who is the author of life and the giver of all good things to us. That includes the gift of your truth, that which helps us separate truth from error, good from bad, the helpful from the harmful. Father, may we be immersed in your truth such that we are able to discern between false prophets and the good ones. Give us a knowledge and a wisdom 
that enables us to reject what we should not be following and embrace that which is your good, reliable, and life-giving truth for us. Help us to continue to increase in our knowledge and application of your truth in our lives. And then for, you, for those who have yet to take you as the source of all truth, for those who have yet to declare their poverty and their sin before you and come to faith in Jesus, I pray that they would do that right now. And for those of you who are listening, if that is you, I invite you in silent prayer to pray along with me. Jesus, I am a sinner in need of your salvation. I want to turn from sin and follow you. I come to you in faith and ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart and life. Make me right and whole. I give myself to you now and take you to be my Savior and Lord. May the fruit of your presence within me be abundant and obvious to all, and may you be glorified in my life. For I pray it in Jesus' name.